The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. But Yorkie Cespedes, I think, is an interesting case Now you have a cat. It just, it just doesn't end. Uh, <laughs> I love it. So if we could, I'm thinking about Yorkie Cespedes' <laughs> <laughs> Just can't win. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. Also alongside us, today's special guest, Kevin Goldstein. That's right. Kevin Goldstein, former executive of the Houston Astros, now part of Fangraphs, and it's our complete honor to welcome him back to the Future Sox podcast. <laughs> so much to talk about with Kevin. Uh, it, man, seriously, we are we are really looking forward to this. Thanks for jumping back on with us. I'm happy to do it. I am, I am neither special nor worthy of honor, but here I am. <laughs> well, I think you're a perfect guest for what we want to talk about today, considering we are pretty far into the MLB negotiations with the MLBPA here on March 9th as we record this podcast. And we should should touch on that first. We wanted to talk to you about the White Sox from top to bottom, seeing how minor league baseball has reported to spring training. It'll be open to fans as well. So fans can head out to Arizona or, or Florida to check out some minor league spring action. But we're looking at the major league side of things, and we're going to get your take on the White Sox minor league system that was also ranked 30th by many organizations who cover prospects uh, around the web. So that's exciting. But also, there's a couple of uh, names, Kevin, in, in the White Sox system that we're really looking forward to getting your opinion on. So we'll get to that in a second. But first, this Major League Baseball lockout news. Uh, we're at a point now where this – Lockout has consumed most of the winter and almost half of what should have been spring training. And as they get closer to a deal, or at least we hope to believe that there's a deal close, the Major League Players Association and the owners are clearly, clearly not fans of one another. What has been your overall thoughts on the negotiations from the get-go, and why do you think things have held up for this long? Yeah, honestly, like I don't not 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 to play the I told you so game, but I told you so. Like I I my call would you know the day before the lockout was that we were probably going to get a slight delay to the season and somewhere around 144 to 154 games. This has gone exactly like we thought it would go. I you know I, I don't think there have been any surprises. Um, I don't think there was ever really a good chance of spring training starting on time. 
Um, and, and so I think this whole thing has kind of gone the direction that most people thought it would go, or that there wasn't really a path to a disaster, but it was going to be a big pain in the ass for everyone. And that's, that's pretty much exactly what it's been. Um, no one should be surprised these two sides don't like each other. They don't like each other. And, and you know, we got every indication of that in 2020 during the pandemic season when they couldn't agree to something with a common enemy. You know, with the, the pandemic as an enemy, they couldn't even kind of uh, team up to fight that the right way. And so these two sides don't like each other. They don't trust each other. And this has gone pretty much exactly as things have gone. And honestly, you know, like you said, it's Wednesday, it's March 9th. I mean, I feel like we should timestamp everything at this point. It's 3.39 p.m. And, um, you know, I, I think if a deal gets done in the next 24 hours, of which there's a distinct possibility, I think they actually got things done a little quicker than we thought. Kevin, I would generally agree with you. And I've, I've, you know, I've heard you on podcasts and other shows too. And you, you know, you've been pretty consistent throughout. I guess my fear now though, like, you know, while like we've been pro player, I I don't want the players to take a deal they shouldn't take. But on the other hand, like the calendar does kind of matter. And I just worry, like if more games get delayed, then you have to introduce like pay for 162 and service time and all that stuff into the negotiations that are already contentious. Like, I just fear that like, then it could be delayed like months. Am I crazy and off base for that? I don't think you're crazy and off base for that. I just think like the owners don't have much of a leg to stand on in that in the sense that like the players want to play right now, the owners locked out the players. So to say you're going to take their pay away, that's on you. Like you did this. And so you know, it's just kind of a weird situation to be even asking for that. And I, and I don't think we were ever on a path for that. Like it's, a, there's always a chance that in the next hour or so, uh, you know, the, 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 the Passons and Rosenthal's of the world are going to tweet that like MLB has turned them down and talks are off and, and then everything has gone to hell. Um, it, until that happens, like, I, I'm not sure we're going to, to be there. You know, the big hang up right now is on international draft, which is a very complicated thing concept and, and it's not as simple as a lot of people out there are, are talking. Um, and, and that's, if that turns into a hang up, I think that's a weird thing to hang it up on. Um, but you know, we're not done yet. There's still plenty of, of, of things that could go wrong. I always thought the most likely agreement was going to be something in late March. And I, I think we might still have some time right now. Um, you know, I, I think it's good that we've gotten closer on things like the CBT and the bonus pool and things like that. Um, but but it seems like the real hang up right now is, is eliminating the the free agent compensation uh, as far as the draft picks go, which which we desperately need as an industry. Uh, but that's going to come with international draft, which the players are not going to just uh, you know take part and parcel. Um, so so that's our our biggest hang up right now, and and we'll see if they get through it. As somebody that's been in a front office, we talked before. Like you you've been in the Dominican, you know you're very familiar with the way things operate down there. You know the last agreement was really bad on that front. And what they're currently doing in that market, I don't think is really good for players and good for anyone. Now you could argue that major league baseball isn't really doing anything to stop the corruption because they want to draft because that would, you know, cause it's what they want and that would be easier for them. I guess I'm a little bit surprised just at like the public nature of like how mad people are at the, even the suggestion that this draft like could be better than what they're doing. It just like, doesn't make sense. Like drafts obviously suppress wages in every sport. Mm -hmm. Like I get that, but it, but it, it has to be better than what they're currently doing. Well, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble here. Um, like it's, it's very easy to just like, 
look at international stuff and go, oh, exploitive, bad. And and in some ways, you're not wrong. In many ways, you're not wrong. There's all sorts of nefarious stuff going down there. That doesn't mean a draft necessarily solves all your problems, you know, as far as that kind of stuff goes. Um, And, you know, know, in a world we we have plenty of people who have never been down there, who have never seen what it's like down there, who have no experience with the, with the players or the systems down there screaming and, and, and assigning their socioeconomic beliefs, many of which I align with very well uh, about how horrible their national is. And then you have David Ortiz and Fernando Tatis Jr. saying, Hey, we don't want this. And maybe we should listen to Dominican players as well. Uh, you know, I, I think it. I think the international thing is a lot more complex than ninety nine point nine seven percent of the people out there who like to pontificate about international is, uh, and I and I think that has to be addressed. I I am for an international draft. I am not for one right away. I think it has to be done really smartly and and really in conjunction with the machinery that is Dominican Republic baseball, as opposed to just, you know, implemented like, you know, coming in and just stomping all over the place. And, and so I think doing one this year would be really, really bad. And that's the, you know, that's a good example is like, you know, they, it came out today that you know, MLB wants to start an international draft in 24. And it was like, Oh, that's just because they want to let the teams exploit these players. So they've already gotten deals with 23. And that's certainly going to happen if you don't start a national draft in 24 but they want to do it because they want to get it right they don't want to just like pound in and do this and 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 deal with all the unforeseen consequences and i think it's very easy to be knee-jerk reactive to most of these things and and i'm with you guys i'm very pro player and i I hope the players get everything they want and more but uh, i do think it's good to to kind of you know be when you're going to come out with a hot take on something you it's good to have as much of an understanding as you can talking to kevin goldstein national writer of fangraphs and be sure to go to fangraphs.com and if you're able become a member fangraphs offers uh, in-depth stories and information and all you need to know if you use fangraphs just for looking up numbers and stats or just any sort of information consider becoming a member because they take care of you so now it's up to us to help them as well so kevin let's talk briefly like you mentioned too just the value of what the players are trying to get out of this and what the owners are selling or at least trying to sell is that yes, they're losing money, but it's, it's not that they're not making money. It's they're making less money over time. <laughs> uh, and really when I look at it and when they, when they kind of have the selling point of the CBT with the number being where it is, whatever that number is, and they're implementing whatever higher taxes, if they're going above the, that's fine. But what happens to incentivize small market, I, I quote, small market clubs or those who are unwilling to spend to make them spend? Because you know, small market ball clubs can get away with a $40 million a year payroll, even if the luxury tax is set at $230 million. So what actually incentivizes teams or, or those who are unwilling to spend to actually go out and pay for players? Uh, yeah, I think the revenue from getting making the playoffs with an expanded playoff system, I know that's something that's unpopular, but I think that could help things. I think fixing, you know, some of the tanking issues as far as the, this draft lottery and the way they're going to you know, set some of the rules for, how, you know, how many times you can be in the lottery, do that kind of thing. Um, I wish there was more in here as far as service time manipulation, uh, but it's not going to be perfect. That's, that's obviously for sure. Um, I, I think the first thing we need to do is just kind of, 
put away the thought that baseball teams don't make money hand over fist because they do every one of them. Like, I don't care who you're talking about. You can name any team in baseball. They're making unbelievable amounts of money. And, you know, a, a big kind of, 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 you know, screaming call during all this stuff is that you know, Major League Baseball has to open their books. And even that wouldn't matter because so much of this money is, is kind of hidden and or hidden is not the right word, but, but kept separate really from a, a baseball operations profit and loss statement. You know, you think about, you know, most teams, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, if you go to a Dodgers game and you pay a lot of money to park at a Dodgers game, that doesn't show up on the baseball thing. Cause you know, who runs the parking Dodgers parking LLC, you know, who owns Dodgers parking LLC, the Dodgers, but that's not, that doesn't show up on the Dodgers profit and loss statement. Right. Um, you know, and an even larger example in terms of just pure cash is, is uh, on the North side where, you know, Ricketts says things like biblical losses. And that's because technically he can, you know, make a spreadsheet say that, and he's not wrong, but he also took on all this debt because he just bought up half of Wrigleyville. You think that's going to pay off for him? I guarantee you it is. You know, and it, it's one of those things where, you know, you buy you know, teams have been bought as little as 15, 20 years ago for a couple hundred million dollars. Then you say, oh, we lost money. We lost money. We lost money. And then you sell the team for $1.2 billion. Did you really lose money? And so, you know, once you get into these kind of businesses where, you know, as a whole, it's the kind of money that, that are, are numbers that you and I can't really wrap our heads around at times. Um, you know, this is the way it exists. And I, I think, you know, I like what you said is like, they're not making as much money as they want. And that's always the case. And it's just a silly part of, of, of America in a lot of ways. And, and it, it happens everywhere. I, <laughs> I remember laughing recently just because, you know, and you might laugh just because I say these words, a Panda Express closed in my town recently. And, and, you know, that's enough for a newspaper story where I live. And in the newspaper story, the Panda Express guy said, no, the store was profitable. It just wasn't profitable enough. And so you'd close a store that's still profitable. And that's the kind of things like people always want to make. It's not enough to make some money. You got to make more money. And that's why you end up in these kind of issues like we have. Do you think a salary floor in baseball is ever plausible or do you think it'll ever become a thing? I mean, the problem is if you if you. Yeah, and people far smarter than I have, have done this. If you actually do the work on what a salary floor would do, it sounds right on. It sounds really great at the beginning. You know, you're like, oh, great, it would make it would make these teams spending thirty, forty million dollars. And and look, I'm you know talking to someone who you know, the first year I worked with the Astros, the payroll was under thirty. But you know, there were teams that would make them spend more. That's great. But overall, if you study it, actually, you know, a salary floor without a salary floor that also features a cap, which is what a CBT is, uh, at the end of the day, does regress total spending so it might raise the floor here and there but it regresses total spending so i don't think it's a good idea i I think you know i you can't make every team go for it um there are things we need to do to incentivize teams to put their best product on the field um which which this current cba does not necessarily do there's it's only minor improvements it's kind of just messing around the margins um but it does make it a little less incentivized to to just flat out tank so yeah so one of the parts of this like i'm going to go into then is the uh just like the draft and you know the proposed changes with the draft lottery i just wanted to get your thoughts on it i mean obviously you know when you guys were with the when you were with the astros you guys you know i'm not going to call it tanking because I, you know i i think they it's tank smart. it's fine so it seems like you know, under this proposal, and obviously, like, we're not in the room, right? But it seems like they're going to try to stop larger market teams from doing it multiple years in a row, whatever it is, six teams, five teams, four teams. I guess I've always just kind of assumed that 
like it wouldn't totally stop tanking because if you could have the sixth worst record and get the number one pick, like, you know, that sounds like a pretty good gamble to me. So <laughs> I guess like, what are, what are your thoughts on, I guess, like just if this is going to stop tanking the way they think it will, or is it just kind of eyewashed? Um, I think it's probably in between, you know, I, I think it's a minor improvement. I don't think it's going to be like a sea change. I, I, I think it's a minor improvement that might do some slight disincentivizing, but, but not, not in a big way. It's okay. better. It's not good. Okay. So it's better, but so like the large, so it does, it is, I guess, you know, like the White Sox did it too. Like if you're sure, you know, if you're the White Sox and you had the number three pick in the draft and you're not allowed to have a top, what, six pick the next year, like maybe that changes the way you do things and maybe you sign more players, but I don't know. I just like, don't know. I guess it's just something that I get, for what we do, I think it'll be more interesting, right? Because it's like sure. you could have you could have a TV show, and oh, this team has the number. It'd be kind of like the NBA in a sense, where you know the baseball draft is the least popular, obviously. But for for guys like me, that would be interesting. Like, oh, this team was had the fifth worst record and jumped to the number one pick. That part of it, selfishly, would be kind of cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it would, it, yes, it would be interesting and cool. Whether it makes things better as far as incentivizing teams to win is still kind of TBD, and and I think it will. But again, like just in a, in a small, minor way. And then before we get to some of the, the White Sox stuff, I've heard you talk about this before in regards to the rule changes. You know, you've been a proponent of the pitch clock. Can you explain just again to people why you think it's such a good idea and why it would solve a lot of problems? It solves 95% of the problems we have in terms of game pace. And, and it's just, you know, having seen it implemented in the minors, first of all, makes it, you know, I'll tell you, boy, you know, before Omicron showed up, it felt like things were looking up in the world, right? And um, it feels like that again, luckily, in terms of COVID. So I actually traveled and, and went to some Arizona Fall League games in, in the fall because that's when the Fall League plays, strangely enough. And um, I went to a game that was an absolute shit show. It was a nightmare. Um, it's like five or six errors. I think there were 14 walks, uh, multiple mid-inning pitching changes when, when guys would hit their pitch counts. And like 13 to 9 was the final score. I got out of there in under three hours, all because they're on a pitch clock. Um, a small part because they don't have, you know, two hour, two minute and 45 second inning breaks, but also like the, the pitch clock was a huge part of why. And I, I think a pitch clock really every, every issue you have with game pace, the pitch clock solves it. Um, I know a lot of the veterans are not for a pitch clock, but all of the players coming up from the minors are coming up playing with pitch clocks and they're getting kind of used to it. And, and they're eventually going to kind of phase the older guys out as they retire. And we can get to a point where a pitch clock's a really good thing. Um, and, and something that all the players are totally fine with. It's not a big deal. Um, but it, as far as like pace of play, I think you're talking about like double digit minutes off of, off of your average game length. I think it said like 14 seconds and then maybe 19 seconds with a guy on base. Like, does that sound right? I... Yeah, that's fine. Like I, it, that's, you know, I've, I've seen 15 and 20, which are obviously much right. more easy, okay. to, easy to digest even numbers, but yeah, you know, something in that area, it's, it's really not that hard a thing to do. It, it doesn't, um, it doesn't rush anything as much as it keeps you from dawdling. Right. And I think that's what, you know, if, if I'm a pitcher, I'm concerned about being rushed or if I'm in a jam and I have to get on the mound and go instead of being able to collect myself, I think it's a little overrated. And what you're saying is I, I completely agree with in terms of get the ball and go, because there's so much nothing that happens after a pitch is delivered. It, it causes people to tune out or not to pay attention and single innings can last over an hour sometimes because of how you're describing it. Sometimes you get into a bad rut and there's walks and base hits and this and that so 
uh, I think that's a really interesting implementation. There's also a couple of other rule changes that uh, have been presented. And I think one that stands out to me is increasing the size of bases. Not only does it help players protect themselves, especially first basemen, when they're running down the line, you know, you don't want to step on each other or what have you. It decreases the risk of injury. But also, I think it's interesting to think about stolen bases, balls in play, you know, more people uh, willing to take the extra base because it's shortened the distance based on just a, a small increase in base size. I think that's interesting, Kevin, and I also would love to get your take on what you think the value is in Major League Baseball restricting shifts in the game. Um, I mean, uh, the bases are, are a, a big kind of whatever for me. Like, you want to do that, that's fine. I, I don't think it's going to make a huge increase in base running, and I do think it increases player safety, which is really the primary thing behind that, which I'm great with. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But you see, like, so many, they got so many injuries that we see that happen because there's traffic at the bases. And, and if, if this can help reduce that, I'm all for it. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I am not for banning the shift. Uh, I, I think it's a silly thing to do. I, I'm all for innovation, and and I think if you want to innovate and you want to do something different, you should be able to do something different, and it's up to the other team to adjust back. Um, eliminating a shift does not do what you want it to do. Like eliminating a shift is not going to create more contact. Uh, it's going to create less contact actually, because it's going to have pitchers even more focused on strikeouts, and so you end up in this world where, you know, I I, I think so often. Um, you know, they implement these rule changes with good intentions. And, you know, I used this term earlier when talking about the international draft, like there's all these unintended consequences of things. Um, robot umps is another example. There's unintended consequences and you think you're solving a problem, but you're actually creating three more. Um, and I, I don't understand what banning the ship really accomplishes on any level. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it was implemented too in the minor leagues and we saw uh, a, a marginal difference, if any, in terms of balls and plays that were that resulted in base hits, so I'm with you. Uh, if if there's a way to create an advantage to stop the other team from getting on base, then it's up to the other team to figure out how to beat that and to get back on base. I think that's pretty well put by you. Uh, so let's let's move on from some of the things that boy that we feel like we've been following for years at this point between uh, <laughs> negotiation labor negotiations and actually talk about the big league club and what's going on behind the scenes and we mentioned early in the episode that yes minor league baseball is going to take place this year and minor league players are at spring training at this point and specifically with the white Sox, we're keeping an eye on guys like norhe vera and oscar colas yoelki cespedes colson montgomery west kath just to name a few and i think first kevin i want to start with a couple of the international guys who are finally going to get a taste of spring training stateside in Uwalki Cespedes, Oscar Colas, and Norhe Vera. We talk about the, the scouting uh, of the White Sox in Cuba, the, the presence that they have there, as well as in Dominican. I think it's just very undersold how dedicated players who were brought up in Latin American countries ultimately get to the big leagues like how significant that is for them and the White Sox have really made this a destination point in Chicago for specifically Cubans but also we, we talk about the Dominican players as well and just the the value in what the White Sox have have placed in international signings like those who I mentioned earlier I think is a big deal and we get to see you know some of that talent come to fruition this year and I think that's really exciting it is exciting and, and I, you're right I mean, the, the, the White Sox are 
uh, you know, one of the leaders in the Cuban market. And, you know, the other one was the Astros, which is why when you talk about these players, like I've seen all these players, um, Cespedes is the one guy I have. And I saw Vera as an amateur in the Dominican. I saw Colas as an amateur in the Dominican, maybe days after he arrived in the Dominican, really. And so the White Sox have, it, it's, it's, it can't be stated enough, kind of the value that, that the Jose Abreu signing had for them in ways beyond all the wonderful things he's done on the field for them in the sense that it established them as, as kind of players in Cuban and creates a more attractive destination for Cuban players. You know, Cuban players are thinking about where to sign and they see Jose Abreu, but they also see all of these other Cuban players in the system. And that, that matters to them and that means something to them. I don't know that the White Sox do specifically. I know the Astros did specifically because I, I, you know, I, I saw it directly, but you know, the Astros had Yuli Gurriel uh, and Yuli Gurriel, to many people listening to the show might be like a nice first baseman who, who, who is a good, nice bat. Um, you know, in Cuba, Yuli Gurriel is a rod, you know, he is a, a mind numbing superstar. Um, and so, you know, when you're getting close with some of these players, like often have Yuli call them and it meant a lot. And I'm sure the, the White Sox uh, do the same with Abreu and, and, and they're happy to do it. And it creates this, 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 a real selling point, a real attractiveness of a location for a lot of these Cuban players to go to the White Sox because um, they're going to be with their countrymen. They're going to you know, be with players who are also from Cuba who are going through a lot of the same things. The adjustment sometimes is a little different for the Cubans and, and it, it can be a real challenge. Uh, but to show up and know that this is not new to the team, but also you have a lot of other players in the system who are also Cuban, um, it can be a real value. It can help you sign some of these players at times. But uh, you know, to get to the players themselves, like Cespedes, it'll be real interesting to see what happens. You know, obviously, you know, it's such a weird situation just you know, with everything we've been through and the fact that he's now 24 years old all of a sudden. Um, like, he has to move quickly, but like he hasn't played forever, right? And so, like, just how much rust is there? Like, how long is this going to take for, for, for things to, to figure things out? Um, you know, and then Vera's like a different case where, you know, he was ready to play in the States last year, but didn't for, for financial reasons. And now we'll, you know, they're going to just kind of unleash him and we'll see how good that looks. And so, you know, I know it's not a good system. It's not a good system, but there's stuff to be really interested and exciting about. And those are kind of two of the bigger ones right there. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. I mean, they're, they're 30th pretty much everywhere. No disagreement from us, but I feel like, you know, a lot of people that do similar to what you do have said like, yeah, you know, but it's 30 for the right reasons. And, you know, I understand that. Should there be, any concern? I mean, they do need to, you know, if they're 30 at this time next year, there's a problem, right? But it should be, you know, they should like, right. And I, and I do agree like with, like, there are some, like, I remember when they had the 30th rank system and Addison Reed was their top prospect. Like it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that right now. I'm not a huge fan of organizational rankings. I don't, you know, I think you have to do them to, to kind of feed the beast, if you will. But you know, anytime you you say that this is the 30th best organization, like it's just as that's, today that's a snapshot right now right so you know four of these guys get off to good starts they're not the 30th worst organization anymore and so all of a sudden you end up in this spot where it's just right now this is where it is right now there's all sorts of room for this you know system to move up and and it probably will at some point you know i don't think they're going to be the number three system in baseball 12 months from now um but at the same time, like the, these kind of snapshot rankings are, are exactly that. And I don't think it's something that anyone should get too worked up about it. The systems, it's not good right now. Like there, there, there's not a whole lot of depth. You know, you think about, 
you know, guys you would put or, or think about at the bottom of the White Sox top 10 would probably be more in the 20s in some organizations. And, and, and that's just how it is. But at the same time, like that's just where they are right now. You know, a, a couple draft picks work out, make a couple good picks come July. Uh, some of the, these international guys take a step forward. Things look much better real quick. So you mentioned that you saw Oscar Colas and it was uh, a long time ago, I'm assuming. But what, I guess what were your thoughts there? Obviously, he's in Arizona right now and we've mm-hmm. seen the we've seen reports from beat writers and the body looks better and he's got power. But I mean, it's still a, just a complete unknown. And it's two point seven <laughs> million in this system, obviously, is probably the most they could basically pay him essentially. So I guess what is what is like a successful season look like for Oscar Colas? I'm guessing probably Winston Salem to start. It's tough. Like another guy who, you know, is hasn't played organized in-game baseball for a very long time now. And so I think you need to be ready for a, a longer than normal adjustment period. Uh he does have wacky power. Like I've seen it. It's big, big. He's a very large human being with very big power. And, you know, whether he's going to hit or not is still a little bit to be determined. So I don't think anyone should be shocked or surprised if you see like really high strikeout numbers, at least to start out of them. Um, you know, his, his calling card is the power. It's what you're paying for uh, because it is it's extreme. And so you, you, you pay for it and then you hope he'll figure out how to hit. Um, and so I, I do think it's going to be. You know, these guys deserve, you know, Colas and Cespedes in particular, these guys deserve a pretty long runway um, just because it's going to take some time because of the huge gap they've had between kind of playing real baseball. Yeah, I, th- I like that uh, approach, too. You know, we, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. It's encouraging to know that Oscar Colas has had professional experience in the past mm-hmm. playing in Japan. Um, so I'm thinking of Yoaki Cespedes and, and his impact potentially on the 2022 White Sox. And again, this is somebody that I don't want to get too ahead of myself on in terms of expectations. But when I look at him, you know, he's a little undersized. Mm-hmm. However, it seems like he's got some pop and he can play any position in the outfield. The value is there in center field, but when you have Luis Robert, you know, you're not necessarily looking at that as, as sort of a mainstay in, in his game. However, the fact that he can do it, yeah, that's great. What about Yoelki Cespedes' swing tells you that this is transferable to the major leagues? And is there anything that, that is, you know, maybe we should be apprehensive about in Yoelki Cespedes' game? I think if you're really smart, your expectation as far as Yoelki's contributions to the major league baseball 2022 white Sox, like you should set it at zero right i think if you're expecting him to come up and do something for you i think that's you're setting yourself up for disappointment if he does it and it's certainly within the realm of possibility that's great fantastic but to sit back and expect that i think is a really dangerous assumption i, I think this is going to take some time uh i mean the thing that really stands out is just the this is this it's really excellent bat speed um, he's very twitchy, very strong, and that's a, that's a really nice combination. Um, we need to see how much he's going to hit right now, and 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 the track record that we have is just okay. Um, but he's a very different player physically from from what he was when we saw him in in Cuba in in the past. You know, he's a, he's a much larger and a much stronger uh, player. And so, you know, I think he's probably going to be a right fielder in the end um, that he sure can throw, but it's, it's, it's probably a little bit short for, for center field in terms of range. 
And I just, I think right, I think for 2022, like I think your entire goal would just to be, just kind of get him going and let him land on his feet and and understand this is how things work over here and this is what is expected of him, um, and, and not aim for some sort of of you know big part of the big league team this season. Yeah, I think that's totally fair, and I think expectations for us here at Future Sox are any type of contribution in the big leagues in 2022 is a, is a massive success for this player, despite the fact that, yeah, he is older, but still limited stateside experience, especially within the White Sox system. Now, you mentioned Norhe Vera, and you saw him early in Vera's career. I'm interested in what you like about him, because I'm a huge fan. I mean, I see videos of his delivery. It looks like Easy mechanics, easy 97. He's got really long legs. Mm. I'm, I'm just so curious on what you think of Norhe Vera and what he could become here with the White Sox. If you want to sound like a scout, you got to call him high-waisted. High-waisted. <laughs> but uh, I did see him. It was one of those things where interest was very high, but it was very clear even at the time that he was going to end up going to the White Sox and so didn't get too involved with him. Um, but like you said, like he is. there's a lot of length to his frame. Uh, it's it's very athletic. The delivery is very good. Um, you know, he was at the time kind of low to mid nineties. The fact that he's gained velocity is not shocking to me at all. I think everyone thought that was going to happen. Um, there's two power breakers in there uh, that I think are 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 pretty impressive. The changeups kind of coming. Um, there are he can get loose, you know, in terms of his command and control, and and. That's okay. That's the, you expect that from a player, both young and rusty. It's not like a huge cause for concern. He does not get wild as much as he just, you know, I think it's okay when you have that kind of stuff just to say, Hey, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put this pitch in the box and go ahead and hit it. Let, let's see you do it. Um, there are plenty of guys that have big league success with good stuff who just do that. I'm just going to throw a strike with this. I, I can't locate it. Um, and so I think he's, you know, a real, it's a pure starter package. There's, there's three or four good pitches in there. There's, there's a a good frame, a good delivery. Like he checks a lot of boxes and, and trying to figure out exactly what that is at the end of the day is, is something I think you and I and the White Sox even will have a a much better idea of once he, he, he has a full season here in the States. Yeah. So something that you mentioned earlier was like, just, you know, the presence of other Cuban players in the organization, and I know that was, he was like living in Jose Contreras's house this off season. And, you know, cause Jose played with his father, I believe. So I, yeah, you know, I don't Jose is very involved in the Cuban amateur market. If you, if you run around the DR and you're going to see Cubans, you're going to run to Jose Contreras more than a few times. Yeah. So that's, that seems helpful too. So my, mm-hmm. my last prospect, I, you know, their number one prospect right now, and, and this is, Sometimes an indicator of a system that's not that great is their first round pick from last year, Colson. <laughs> right, it's the easy call, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so he was 19. He's from mm-hmm. Indiana. And, you know, I know you did a lot of draft coverage. What were your thoughts on Colson Montgomery? And then did you, are you someone that, you know, is it a red flag that he was older, but it's, you know, fine two years from now when he's in college? I just, that that conversation is always interesting to me. It is an interesting one, and you know, it's it's. I, I understand both arguments. I think age matters, but and I think maybe we overrate age at times. Um, so, so I think both can be true. Um, if a player is good enough, I think you should just take him. You know, but I think age should move the needle. It shouldn't. It should not be a a in or out measurement. Um, but it, it's very understandable for it to move the needle, if if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, that, that stands out about Montgomery is obviously just kind of the frame and the tools, right? It's a 
big, strong, very athletic kid. You know, he's six foot four, swings from the left side. He's very athletic. Um, everything just kind of looks right. You know, the operation of the swing, the operation of him in the field, I think it's probably a third base at the end of the day. Um, he's just big. He's not super fast. And so it just kind of has a third base vibe to it. And that's okay if he ends up hitting and hitting for power. And so, you know, I do think it's going to be a bit of a slow burn um, just because history tells us that, you know, these, these you know kids from Indiana are not going to move as fast as kids from Florida. It's just how it is. Um, and level of competition, how often they play, all that kind of good stuff. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with them. I, I, whether he's their number one prospect is a, is a great question. If you think about, you know, if you were a team and you had, you know, and you were offering, uh, you know, and the White Sox said you could take anyone from our system, I feel like, would that be the first guy team's take? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, 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 I I, I struggle to answer that one and, and say, yeah, it's Colson Montgomery, but it's certainly a good prospect. And the guy most people saw as a guy who would go right around where he went. It's not like the White Sox shocked anyone by making him the 22nd pick in the draft, right? If you would have asked people a week for the draft, they go, where's Colson Montgomery going to go? And you're like, yeah, probably in the 20 somewhere. And so it, it's it's not like it was you know, that they had you know over-scouted him or, or, or you know had him way higher than the industry. He kind of went right in line with where the industry had him. And it all makes sense to me. Yeah, I love watching Colson Montgomery on video. Just early returns suggest that he can stay at the position at shortstop. Uh, I know you're talking third base, but still, there's there's optimism uh, within the White Sox organization to believe that this is this is a mainstay within their A. And if you know what they're trying to win a World Series and they have to move him to get that final piece, so be it. If they get a World Series, I think it all it all will work out. But of course, you know. Who knows? So with that being said, yeah, obviously the ultimate goal is the World Series. And of course, when the White Sox are good, there's another lockout. Uh, But when we're talking (laughs) their starting rotation, I'm thinking very seriously, obviously, about this. Carlos Rodon is most likely not going to be in this conversation. And if he is, then the White Sox finagled their way to another pretty valuable signing. But I think a lot has to do with the success of Michael Kopech or just the value that he brings to the club this year? I mean, what, what are your expectations for Kopech? How do you believe he'll impact the White Sox starting rotation this year? I mean, I think it's really important to note that, like, and it's easy to forget about this because we're all just kind of waiting for baseball to start. Once baseball starts, spring training is going to start a few days after that, is that we still have kind of half of an offseason to do, right? And so we can look at a, at a lineup of White Sox depth chart, if you will, and it makes sense to, to put Michael Kopech in the five hole. I'm not sure the White Sox want to do that. Um, and I'm not sure they should do that. I, I think you have a bit of a, if it's not broke, don't fix it thing with Kopech, where I would simply keep him as a multi-inning reliever. I think that's where his best value is. I think, you know, we know it's, we know he's good at it. Um, and, and why mess with something and ask him to do something he hasn't done, especially ask him to do something he hasn't done and do it in the big leagues for a team that you expect to win the division. Uh, I think that's a really tough thing uh, to, to, to ask for. And so I, I don't think they're necessarily out of the market on, on acquiring another starting pitcher and let Kopech be Kopech. So that's the last thing I was going to ask on this is, you know, I don't want to get you in any trouble because you were in a front office and I know these guys <laughs> aren't supposed to be talking to each other, but I mean, are we going to see some sort of crazy frenzy like the NFL and some of the other salary cap leagues once this ends? And does that indicate that, you know, guys maybe did have deals or some idea of what might happen? I think for the most part, like it's obviously not 100%, but I think for the most part, teams have behaved per instructed by Major League Baseball, um, which is not to contact free agents. I I think that's very much been followed. 
um, and not to, to, to deal with each other on trades. Um, I'm not saying it's hundred percent, but I, I don't think that they're all behind the scenes with everything lined up. I think it's really important to note that obviously the lockout occurred. We saw what happened in the, in the 72 hours or so prior to the lockout, right? That was a frenzy. And there are all sorts of negotiations and talks that were happening during that time that did not reach the finish line before the lockout went. And they're just kind of hanging there. So there's going to be all sorts of quick stuff happening. And that doesn't mean that the teams were, were dealing behind the scenes and things like that. It just means like things were pretty lined up before they started, before they locked them out in November. And, you know, I, I do think you're going to see, um, I think, I, I've talked to a lot of people in baseball about what they expect to happen once this this thing gets done. And I had two separate people, two separate people, two separate teams, both use the word chaos. Um, and, and I think that's exactly what you're going to see. It's going to be absolute chaos. Um, you're going to see uh, an unbelievable number of signings in the first three to five days. Um, it's going to happen real quick. And that's because teams want to kind of know what they have. And teams want to get camp going with the team that they think is going to be their team. And so you're going to see some some real, real quick movement. Yeah, it sounds awesome for us. I mean, that'll be, you know, whenever whenever it gets yeah. going. I mean, it's kind of, I it's think fans. It's going to be a busy time at Fangraphs. Yeah, like fans for years. I mean, like, oh, why isn't it like the NFL? And obviously it's because it's not a salary cap sport and all those other reasons. But this would actually kind of be like those free agent and trade frenzies. So um, Right now, yeah, it's going to be nuts. I think so for anybody that's followed along with Kevin Goldstein on, on Twitter, you, you know, your, your house hunt was, you know, fairly public, I think, where you were <laughs> talking on there. And I think you tweeted a, a picture, that famed photo of Mike Ditka that my parents have in their basement. And <laughs> I think everybody's parents have in their basement in the South suburbs where I live. So how many Mike Ditka photos have you seen on your house hunt? And what is the genesis, I guess, of the Midway bungalow story? <laughs> So, so, you know, I, I moved to Chicago in the mid eighties and, and lived in the city for, for 20 years. Um, and I did have a run where obviously you guys know, so if you live in the city, um, chances are you're a renter, right? And when you're a renter, you change apartments a lot, right? And, and I went through a run where I literally couldn't get through an, an annual or every two year apartment hunt with it at some point looking at an apartment and seeing a photo of Mike Ditka on somebody's wall. Um, it just kind of became this running joke and it's now 2021 and we walked into a house, uh, in this here in the suburbs and, and I walked into this office and there it was the photo of Mike Ditka. It just kind of amazed me. It still happens, but it all kind of started with a thing I first saw in the 1980s on my way to Midway airport. And we've, if you've ever driven to Midway Airport at a certain time, you end up on a kind of, you get up the highway and you take kind of this main drag down to Midway, right? And and there's a lot of these, you know this, you live in, you, where you live, like there's a lot of bungalows down there, right? Just, just like rows and rows of bungalows. And there's this one that always caught my eye and always made me laugh. And I saw it in the 80s, in the late 80s when I traveled a lot. And it made me laugh. And I usually fly out of O'Hare. And at one point in the 90s, I, I had to fly to Midway and drove by that house. And there it was. It was still there. I was so happy. Um, and it made me laugh. And then, you know, once I started working in baseball, I was traveling a lot. Uh, and a couple of times I had to go to Midway and it was like 2015. And so we're talking about 30 years after the first time I saw this thing. And we're going down Midway and I kind of sat up. I said, holy shit, I wonder if that's still there. And we drove by. And there it was, and it's this, it's a bungalow and in the big center window of the living room facing out to the street, 
again, this is, I believe this is still there. At least it was about as of five years ago. I've been there for 30 years now faded, but still there is a full size photo of Mike Ditka. And below that are the words, and I'll do this in my best Chicago accent, gone, but not forgotten. (laughs) Yes. And the fact that 30 years later, it means so much to the person who lives in that bungalow just warms my heart. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is uh, (laughs) a once in a lifetime experience, but I can't say that because it's happened over and over again. So if you ever, I'm trying to remember that, if you're on that main drag, keep your eyes open for the bungalow with the Ditka photo. That's awesome. Kevin, you're the man. Uh, I did notice that you're playing Elden Ring to kind of take the stress away. <laughs> yeah, you're right, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the right choice for you. Yeah, uh-huh. How's that going for you? <laughs> good. Good. I, I, so, oh, good. Yeah. yeah I, well, I, I, so I'm very lucky in that I have a, I have a, a dedicated Elden Ring coach. Uh, my, my younger son is, in, is, is prob- I would guess probably in the 95th to 97th percentile of all Souls games players in the world. Oh, wow. And so he came over for dinner on Sunday um, with his fiance, and and uh, we fired the game, and he gave me uh, a, a, like a little one hour tips and, and tricks and strategy session. And I beat the first major boss thanks to him. And then kind of, I've not gone past that, but I did kind of go back to some things because just because he gave me confidence to do it. Um, nice. So I beat some other bosses, like you know, like when the game first starts and you die, and like the first thing you see is this giant gold guy on a giant gold horse. And you're like, man, no, I shouldn't mess with that, right? <laughs> and then you mess with it and he destroys you. Like I killed him, you know. Okay. And, and so um, it, he's he's helped me a lot, and then that it, I'm all very very much better in the game, and it lets me like feel more comfortable kind of exploring because I know I can survive a lot of other places. Um, and so yeah, so I beat the first major boss, which is you know Margit, and and Margit is done. And and probably ready to move on, but still kind of exploring where I've been so far before I I do that. But it I I enjoy these games like they're I kind of enjoy the obtuseness and the and the weirdness of them, and I think they accomplish something kind of amazing. In the sense that like obviously you will fail a lot and die, but you're never mad about it. Like you always just go, yeah, I know what I did wrong. You never you never go, oh, this game's bullshit and shit. Like you just I know exactly what I did mm-hmm. wrong. I'm gonna try again now, but I, it's on me. I did wrong, and and I, I yeah, I'm having a good time with it. Good. How far good. are you? I'm gonna mark this down. Uh, yeah, I, I'm terrible. I gotta say, I suck <laughs> at that game. Uh, all the Dark Souls games are like the, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So it's I don't want to talk about it. But next time we talk, we, we I'm gonna mark this down. We got we got some things to talk about in, in the video game industry because Kevin, you're on it. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm gonna start renting my kit out. I think. Well, there you go. I, <laughs> Hey, not a bad idea. That's Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs. And if you can, go to Fangraphs.com and support Fangraphs. They do a lot for us and they do a lot for you. So if you can, like I said, sign up for what they have to offer. And if you want to make a donation, great. Support Fangraphs. It's a good deal. For Kevin Goldstein and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.